Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Put your money on Kaylee Humphreys. She's the type of athlete and person you can rely on. Whether it's in winter sports or fighting injustice, the reigning world champion in women's bobsledding and monobob knows a thing or two about defying the odds. She's a two-time Olympic champion and three-time medalist for Team Canada, but she eventually left that team and her birth country to seek a safer work environment. She won the right to compete with the U.S. bobsled team in 2019, but has faced a stressful process of gaining citizenship to meet strict Olympic guidelines. In order to slide for the Americans in the upcoming 2022 Beijing Games, she needed a passport. What Kaylee didn't know at the time of this recording is that she was about to get one. She is now officially a U.S. citizen. What she's gone through and how hard she fought is a testament to the power of standing up for who you are and what you believe in. I'm Molly Bloom, and this is Torched, a show about the heat of competition and what the greatest athletes would lose to win. This season is about controversies and scandals on the biggest world stage, the Olympics. Now, we've heard from Kaylee Humphreys before in a previous episode, but because her story is so inspiring, we were compelled to dish out my extended conversation with her. It's our own way of bottling up her perspective and passing it on to you. This bonus episode details Kaylee's relentless ability to overcome obstacles, from childhood bullying to outdated gender norms and abusive relationships. She describes the indescribable, telling us what it's like to win gold at the Olympics and race down an icy slope at 100 miles per hour. Hi, Kaylee. Hey, Molly. I'm so excited <laughs> to have this conversation. I've been reading about you and... You're a badass. Oh, well, thanks. Super excited. <laughs> Likewise. <Yeah. laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I've been really looking forward to this one. Perfect. So I was told you were recently in Beijing for a few weeks of training. Yes, got back uh, two days ago. Nice. How did that go? So that was an experience. Yeah. <laughs> it was an intense process, to say the least. Happy to be home. Very happy to be home. But it was really great to be able to see the track. Everybody was very helpful and things went very well, considering things just took longer than normal. That's all. It just, everything was very delayed. Yes. Like we would spend hours at the track for something that should take 20 minutes. Wow. But That's it, intense. It worked. Yeah. So. Right. We do what we got to do. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone was super nice, very helpful. They were using it as a dry run for the Olympics. So everything was by the book. It went off without a hitch and no one tested positive and had to stay. And 
we all got to be in China for three weeks. So success. <laughs> that's a win. <laughs> okay, let's go back a beat before we dig into what's going on right now. So I'm just curious, what were you like as a kid? Can you talk about who you were, what your experience was? I was not the popular child. I can tell you that. <laughs> I I don't know. I just kind of went to the beat of my own drum, to say the least. But sports was always something for me that I felt most comfortable in. It's where I felt like I could really express myself. As an athlete, as a female, I felt the most comfortable. It allowed me to, you know, play into my intensity and my focus and a bit of that masculine energy. Mm. At the same point, I got to do it as a female and, you know... I think the connections that I made with fellow athletes and even just being a kid, having fun, physically being active, being outdoors, that was always very appealing and it always felt the most comfortable. Like I mm -hmm. really could just express myself and that's where I felt the best place was. So it didn't matter if it was track and field, softball, ski racing, badminton. I played every sport I could possibly play as a kid growing up. And that's always where I had the most fun and where I felt the most free. Are there any specific stories you can think of that kind of illustrates this of you feeling like an outsider or, or the way that oh, the yeah. other kids responded to you? And Yeah. As a kid, I mean, the amount of chairlifts I rode by myself where you'd be standing in line with everybody and then no one would move forward except for you. And you know, it's very purposeful in regards to they'll load up a chairlift with five people, but let you go by yourself. It leads to just questions as to, am I different? Why am I different? Why don't they like me? At the same point, I did have friends growing up. I definitely found people that I connected with, and it was really nice when that was the case. Mm. I would like to think bullying doesn't happen, whether it's in sports or in school or just in life in general, but unfortunately it does. And I definitely was a victim of that growing up. And I think for me, even as a young kid, I was always very goal orientated. I was always mm -hmm. very driven when I knew that there was something I wanted. I was going to do everything humanly possible to make sure that <laughs> I was able to achieve it or at least give my very best effort. Mm -hmm. I think the times as a kid where I had to learn how to rely on myself has really made me the athlete that I am. I think coming into the world as that person who knows who she is and isn't going to compromise that to fit in socially can be a very painful and lonely track, but also yes. <laughs> like extraordinary. You know, look at the things that you've done. I think so. I mean, yeah. there's power in it, but it definitely is not the easy way right? most of the time. And it's not the most liked or the most popular. <laughs> right. I right. will admit that. Did you grow up in a competitive household? Not really. I have two younger sisters. We're all very different. My middle sister, she's very much into school and her friends. Mm -hmm. I'm the big fat loner in our family. Where <laughs> that is, it does not interest me. My youngest sister is probably the most athletic, realistically. Did anyone in your family encourage that competitive side? Did you have a parent that... Definitely. <laughs> okay. I think... Both my parents were very competitive in their younger years. Mm. My mom played soccer. She went to the Pan Am Games. My dad, football, rugby, like did sports throughout high school and university. And they were very involved always with any and everything that we needed. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't 
push competitiveness, but when it was something that we showed in regards to we want to reach a next level in whatever it was. We need a faster horse. I want to be barrel racing champion. I need a better pair of skis. How do I do that? I want to be better. I want to win. It was always matched with their energy. They always encouraged more competitiveness Mm -hmm. in us when it was something that we internally had brought forth that we wanted. They innately understood it. They had sports in their blood. Yeah. They had that whole experience. Yeah. That's really cool. So do you remember a moment or an event when you realized that you had a special talent in bobsled? There's definitely been a couple moments throughout my career where I've been like, okay, this is where I'm supposed to be. This makes sense. And then I've had a couple moments when I've doubted and thought, am I even good at this? Almost every single year, my very first trip down, I'm like, am I going to remember what to do? (laughs) Do I even know? (laughs) I do this 19 years. (laughs) Five-time world champion, I should know, but you still have that moment of like, "Mm," and then you take one run and you're like, oh yeah, okay. (laughs) But yeah, I was a brakeman, so the person at the back of the sled in that very first games, and I knew I couldn't stay in that position. I had a calling to become a pilot. My first international win in 2009 as a pilot, I think that was the first time I was like, okay, I actually have something here. I can win races. Yeah. So the realistic goal of being my best self and having that be the best in the world, I thought, okay, there's something here. But to do it consistently is also something very different. So then you get to the next level of, can I win a world championships? Can I win an Olympic medal? Can I defend those titles? And so I think each time I've done that, it's provided me a lot more security in regards to this is who I am. This is where I'm meant to be. And this is definitely my calling and what I love to do. Did those moments of I've arrived or I have something here or this thing that's been a dream might be a reality, did they help to ease the the sort of pain and anguish of being bullied as a kid, feeling like an outsider? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Because it gave me something to hold on to and it provided proof, Mm. I think, to myself that it was okay. And I know that we... I mean, all the books will say, you don't need outside confirmation. You should just know it. But like, sometimes it's really hard and you just don't know. And you think, what is it about me? Or like, is this right? Have I just sacrificed and dedicated for something Mm -hmm. or for nothing? I think those moments definitely helped provide a lot more confidence in myself, but in my abilities too. Yeah, for sure. And give purpose to the struggle. Definitely. I think that's a really powerful message, and I can really relate to that as well. I think that's the silver lining of a going for it, you know? Yeah. So your sport, bobsledding, bobslaying. <laughs> Pick one. Sounds good. <laughs> we don't care. <laughs> Since you're going for Team USA, we'll say bobsledding, right? Yes. Right. Okay. Perfect. It's historically been a very male-dominated sport. Yes. Yeah. Can you speak to that a little bit, kind of? Yep. What that looks like. When I first got into bobsled, women didn't have the same prize money. We weren't allowed on all the same tracks as the men. And it was because we weren't skilled enough. We weren't good enough drivers. The whole quote unquote women's driver thing comes up. You know, you're not working as hard. And so it's not warranted. The women before me used to get boxes of detergent as prizes. There was no prize money. And it was then you can't be on the same tracks. And then even within my career, We haven't been allowed on the same circuits, doing the same amount of races. Mm -hmm. This coming Olympics in 2022 in Beijing will be the first time ever women have equal medal opportunity. We will have two events that we get to compete in. Men have had two since 
before women in bobsled were even a sport. They have two men and four men. Women have two men and now monobob, which will be the first time ever. I've been told we're not skilled enough. We're not strong enough. We're not fast enough. We're not allowed in the same start houses sometimes. You get a tent outside with a heater. And it's demoralizing. It's degrading to know that based on your gender. And it's starting to change. And you bring acknowledgement to this. I had to fight for years just to be able to drive a four-man sled and to be able to prove to people this is warranted. And it took teammates that were willing to get behind me to be like, yes, we think you're skilled enough and strong enough. And it took a lot of conversations in politics <laughs> to say women deserve more opportunities to compete. We want the four-man event. We want more challenges. And our sport is also a very niche sport. It's a very small-knit community. So it's overcoming generations of thought process in regards to what women are capable of and what we deserve basically, in regards to the opportunities. So again, it's a battle we will continue to face and hopefully one day we'll win and that women will be able to do for men and have, you know, 80 participants at the games and men will also have 80 participants and we will actually be equal. That is my goal. Well, my money's on you. Thanks. I don't think it'll happen in my career at the same point. We'll see, but... I would not sleep on Kaylee making <laughs> things happen, okay? <laughs> I do not go out quietly. Let's just say that. And I'm okay with it. No, of course. There's a fair and a just way. And I believe in fairness and justice. And I will fight till the day to make sure that the good guy wins. Amen. So Amen. That's what I think. While you were going through that response to this is a male-dominated sport and talk to me about that, I had to mute myself because... I was audibly outraged at so many things that you said. Detergent? Yeah. Boxes of detergent? Mm -hmm. Like, so what? So you could go home and do your laundry? I guess so. <laughs> I've had conversations with other men in the sport where, like, afterwards we're out drinking, having a good time. And it's, well, I'm like, why doesn't, why doesn't your nation have any women that do this? Oh, no. Women, women don't do this. Women do not do this sport. It's not what it is. I've seen women get pimped out for equipment. Here you go. You can have her for a night if you want this set of runners. I've seen some stuff in the sport that happens that you're like, what is occurring right now? Like the world is a very big place and customs are very different and I'm totally open to it. But some of these things, I'm just, who thought this is okay? <laughs> like, how, how is this okay? I am, my mind is blown. So like I said, if I can somehow get into a sled and show them that this is not the case, this is not the way, and these are not okay things, then I will do it to try and make it better. And hopefully it does for everybody. And I think it's sometimes a positive thing for me and sometimes not. Like I said, it doesn't make me the most popular, but mm -hmm. I'd like to think that it allows me to be respected on all fronts and that hopefully we can change the game and the world for everybody. Absolutely. Can you tell us what it feels like to win gold at the Olympics? Oh, it is so hard to describe. I'm sure. It's very overwhelming. So take every emotion and feeling, put it all into one, and you kind of just stand there for a minute. It definitely, you're so happy. You're so excited. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. cannot believe at the same point that this has happened you're relieved. I think that's one emotion people don't assume that occurs, that it all worked. Like, 
holy crap, it just, yep, that happened. <laughs> so there's, there's a bit of relief, of overwhelming, of joy. You don't know whether to cry, to stand there. For me specifically, I was so in the moment that I just started doing what was normal. I'm like, okay, grab the sled, walk back down. Here's what happened. And then I'm like, man, screw the sled, let it go. Who cares what happens? Like you just won the Olympics. Like jump up and down, do something. But you're so just routine and in the moment, this is my job, this is what I have to do, that it doesn't register. And you're like, okay. And then when it does register, it definitely is, it is the most overwhelming and empowering feeling for sure. Everybody has a different feeling when they achieve a goal. And everybody, I think, will recognize what that is when you want something so, so bad and it finally happens. Just take that feeling though and times it by a hundred. And then that's what it feels like to win an Olympic gold medal. How long does it take to come down? <laughs> like, can you sleep that night? I mean, no. I can't even imagine. No, no. <laughs> yeah. No. And you don't even care that you can't. Like I, sure. after Vancouver in 2010, my first Olympics, I don't think I slept for like five days. I won't lie. Yeah. Maybe like an hour or two here or there. The rest of the time, you might be in bed, but you're awake and you're like, holy crap, like this just happened. And then I think how everyone deals with the aftermath, that's also something they don't prepare you for. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was a very big shock to me because now it's like, well, what's next? And you're like, I don't know. I didn't think I'd get this far. <laughs> and like, you <laughs> knew it would get this far, but you also don't you know, realistically, you have a 0.0001% chance of it getting that far. And you work your butt off to be that 0.0001% chance, but no one prepares you for when it actually happens either. And so you kind of just live out the whole next month as best you can. Everyone just kind of wings it, I think. You go right back into real life. You get home, you see your family, your friends. Most will go on a vacation of some type, just live it up for. I would say a good month or two, and then real life moves on. Then realistically, mm -hmm. the Olympics are over. No one talks about it. For some sports, it becomes obsolete, and you get right back into what's the next goal? Where am I going? Am I continuing? Am I retiring? Am I having a family? You know, what happens with life? Do I need to get a job now? And you just move right into the next thing. Was it the same for you in regards to like competition to not competition? So that shift in not having to pay attention to every choice that you're making. Like it's everything's high stakes because it's going to dictate the future. For the first time in my life, I realized why I still live like that, yeah. you know, and like why that's still the thought pattern of like everything I eat, how much sleep I get, how much work I put in. It's all high stakes, you know? Yeah. And I mean, it permanently influences your brain and, and sort of how you think about navigating life. Listen, I didn't get as far in my sport as you did. Um, I didn't win an Olympics, but I think the byproduct of training since you were a little kid and living that life that you described has a permanent influence on on the rest of your life, no matter what you choose to do. Okay. But I think, Ned, it's positive because you, you know, you go out into the world with like this intensity and this understanding that all these choices that I'm making matter. There's the flip side to that, which is like, can you shut it off when you need to shut it off? And I think that's even in sport, it's the same thing. I think mm -hmm. some athletes can, some athletes can't. And in life, it'll be probably a very similar situation post-sport. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you learn how to give all of yourself and, you know, give 100% to everything. And I think that's a good thing. I don't know about you, but... <laughs> 
don't necessarily want to change that. No, I think it's a great thing unless you apply it at like, you know, building an underground gambling crime syndicate. <laughs> <laughs> then then it's then, you know, carries out. But <laughs> but you did it so well. You right, won the Olympic gold medal in that pretty much. I did. So. I, mean, I was, you know, the best <laughs> yeah. in the world at it. But, yeah. Yo, there's something to be said about that. Okay. I have so much respect for that because okay, I that appreciate is, that. <laughs> it's hard to do to build something so grand in any capacity. And it doesn't matter the field. You're a doctor, you're an artist, you're a chef, mm-hmm. you're an athlete, you build an underground syndicate. It doesn't like to be at that level takes work, time, skill, passion. Like there's very few people that can ever do that in this world as a whole. And I've got mass respect for anybody that can do it in any capacity. And we're all (laughs) the exact same mindset because like you said, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what you've put it forth. You've built the skill as to how to do that, how to give the most out of yourself. And that once you understand you have that tool in your tool belt, it's, you know, it's there. Yeah. When you channel it in the right way, it's super powerful. I want to ask you a few questions to help people imagine what it's like to to be in your shoes in competition. Talk me through the basics. How long is a typical track? How fast do you go? How big is the sled? Kind of describe this experience. So a typical track is about a mile and a half long. We go anywhere from 80 to 100 miles an hour. Every track around the world is very different. So no two tracks are the same. The amount of Mm. corners, the G-force that you pull on each of those corners as a bobsled pilot, I have to visualize and be prepared for every single track around the world Mm -hmm. in every single turn. And sometimes I have a point that's two inches long that I have to hit going 100 miles an hour. And I might see that track eight times a year. Uh, Mm -hmm. At the Olympics, you have four runs to hit your marks you see the track for maybe 44 runs and then you got to compete on it. And the best person at the Olympics is the one that sorted it out the best and is the most consistent. And so Mm. it takes a lot of time, skill, energy in order to be the best pilot. You also have the equipment piece, bobsleds themselves weigh about 165 to 170 kilograms. So 320 to 350 pounds. We physically train like Olympic sprinters and then also like Olympic lifters. We're a combination of both. We need to be really strong to move a sled that weighs 350 pounds, but we're moving it over 50 meters and we're trying to get it from zero to 50 miles an hour in that 50 meter span. So you also have to be very fast, strong to get it moving, fast to accelerate it kind of down the hill and then you jump in. Mm -hmm. After which point... The pilot drives down, so the person at the back, the brakeman, or if it's in monobob and it's just one, you don't ever touch the brakes going on the way down. It's just the pilot that navigates it. So once you're in that sled, you're going, and you're either going to crash or you're going to figure it out. (laughs) In order to win a bobsled race, there's three components. You have to start really fast, you have to be a really good pilot, and your sled and your equipment has to be running really well. I think that's kind of it on the basics of it. On average, I would say women in our sport were anywhere from five five to six feet tall, and we weigh anywhere from 160 to 180 pounds. That makes kind of an average good bobsledder. Some are a little stronger, some are a little faster. A good bobsledder will be a combination of both. You want to be really fast, but also really strong, very explosive and dynamic. 
Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, so let's talk about what you're dealing with now. You're trying to get U.S. citizenship fast-tracked in order to compete with Team USA in Beijing. Uh, why don't you compete for Canada anymore? So after the 2018 Olympics, um, that year was the hardest year I've had in sport throughout my entire career. I've mm. been around teammates that I, you know, would not call friends or choose to be around. I've worked with coaches and had to learn how to work with people and coaching staff that we don't necessarily see to eye to eye. I've had coaches tell me, you're never going to win. You're not good enough. You're not talented enough. I've had coaches like doubt me my entire career. And I've had some amazing teammates and coaches, people that I love, that I call friends that have supported me and mm -hmm. provided opportunities that have allowed me to be who I am today. I faced the most challenging in 2018. We had a brand new head coach about a week before the winter competitive season started. And it was rare that you would, in a in an Olympic year, get a brand new head coach right before the season, having never worked with this person. And mm -hmm. having been in the sport for as long as I had at that point, which was 15, 16 years, I was the most senior person on the Canadian bobsled team. And for that year, I felt less than human. I was told what to think, how to feel, how to act. My teammates were pitted against me. If I didn't abide by the token rule or law, I was punished with removal of services. I was constantly humiliated, yelled at in front of officials, in front of media, in front of the world at the top of the bobsled track uh, because I was focusing on the wrong thing or because I acted or said something that the head coach didn't like. And it was all in an attempt to try and, I felt, belittle or humiliate or demean in order to, mm. quote unquote, make me the picture of perfection. And inevitably, I said, enough's enough. I want to go home. I can't be here. And that was about a month before the Olympics. I was going into what was supposed to be me defending an Olympic gold medal for the first time. That would have been the first time in history of the sport that any athlete would have defended a single event for three times in a row. And I wanted to leave. I didn't recognize myself, who I was, and I constantly feared what was going to happen for my physical safety and then also for my mental health. 
And in doing so, we got to the Olympics and I said, I I can't do it. I want nothing to do with this coach anymore. Everybody abided and said, okay, great. And that was, it was the best two weeks of my entire year. I did not have to communicate with the head coach. I didn't have to say a single thing to him. And he was not to touch my equipment or talk to me at all. And I walked away with a bronze medal and I earned that bronze medal. And I am so proud of that medal. Mm. It might not be gold, but A, it's a medal and B, what this season, what we went through in that season, me and my teammate, and to get to the point of we could still stand on the podium, shoot, that felt like more than a gold medal, even to get to that point. And after the season, I knew that I could not continue in that environment, that I didn't feel safe Mm. physically, and that I didn't feel safe mentally to move forward. And I made that very known to my federation. And in doing so, my funding was cut. I was removed from the team. And the coach got to stay on. They did an internal investigation where they determined that there was not enough evidence to back up my claims, an investigation that I appealed and later won. And so we are currently running a brand new investigation three and a half years later in regards to my initial complaints, because it's the same story that happens everywhere. An athlete doesn't feel safe. Something happens. They feel abused, harassed mentally, sexually, physically. And the athlete is never believed and there's never enough evidence right away. And so I left and I knew that meant ending my career in Canada. I knew that meant that my career was over and I reached out to Team USA. I hoped that it didn't mean my career in the sport was over. It just meant my time within Bobsled Canada was over. And Team USA, gladly, welcome. You'll have to make the team like everybody. You're not granted a single thing. I had to buy a bobsled, come over, do all the qualifications as if any single random person walked in off the street. But I was okay with that because I was provided an opportunity to showcase and to be the best that I could be. And I had to earn that spot and I wouldn't want it any other way. But the team was so gracious in regards to... The opportunity exists for you just like it does for any other American living here. I'd been living in the States already. Um, I was engaged to an American citizen at that point. I'd been living in the U.S. since 2016. So it wasn't foreign for me to compete here. My grandfather was American. Uh, I have family ties to USA. And what I hope in the future is that no athlete ever finds themselves in this situation or they they don't stay in abusive environments or harassing environments for fear that they won't go to the Olympics. And I think that happens a lot. A lot of athletes put up with a lot of stuff that they shouldn't because it will end their career. And I think the IOC personally needs to stand up and provide more accountability and provide and or allow athletes a place where if they do speak up and if they do find themselves stateless, such as I did for a period of time where I don't have my passport yet on the U.S. side, I'm working on it, is one of the qualifications to compete at the Games. I'm in process. My application has been submitted. It's processing and has been for a long time. It's just I'm up against the clock. Can immigration get mine processed in time to compete for the Games, yes or no? I feel so empowered to be a part of Team USA, and I want to win more than anything. I am the most motivated, and not for myself, but to provide back to this country, this team, and my teammates that have empowered me and provided a really great environment for me to thrive in just by existing. And I think that that's a really cool scenario that I wasn't expecting, where I do feel like I've found home. I found my people. Um, I found my my community and yeah, I'm more empowered than ever to 
do the very best that I can for USA. I think what you did was incredibly courageous. Thank you. I mean, just on another level, brave. And I think it's very powerful for you to sit here as tough as can be. I mean, there's no doubt about it that you are tougher than tough. But to still say, I'm a human being and I need certain things. I need respect. I need my dignity. And I can be hurt and I can be harmed because that's the truth. Yep, And it is. To choose your dignity and not know what's on the other side of that is incredibly inspiring. And I just uh, I just think it's just mind-blowing. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. It hasn't always felt like the easiest choice, I will not. admit. It definitely, there have been times when I'm like, did I do the right thing? Of course. Like, more so just from the Olympic side of me and the thought process and as athletes and as, you know, you chase this goal and this dream and what if I don't achieve it? But like you said, there's there's a dignity piece. I preach so hard about anti-bullying mm-hmm. and how it has no place. And I have my entire life attached to, you know, standing up for who you are, for what you believe in and not being willing to compromise, to bend because somebody else thinks that that should be the way. They think women shouldn't drive four men, so you can't. They think these certain things were fitting it in. And so overall, I knew when my time was over with Canada, there was something inside of me that just said like, you have to practice what you preach. Mm-hmm. I can't sit here and tell everybody all this time that stand up, be strong. I can't say you need to put your dignity and be able to have respect and stand up against bullies in the system because ultimately that's what it is. Adult bullies that are going to treat people or athletes certain ways and abuse the power and the process that they have. Athletes are so vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't watch as other people could have been affected knowing I had to deal with it because nobody else stood up to this coach ahead of time publicly. And I needed to say something and make a stance. And I risked myself and my career to do it. And I've had to fight real hard to not let that be the end and to be okay. And I work very closely with a sports psychologist Mm -hmm. in order to continue to make it okay. And it hasn't been easy. Um, So I appreciate the acknowledgement. Why do you think that it takes so long for athletes to be heard when it comes to these kinds of issues? Because the system allows federations and coaches to police themselves. It's set up so that athletes can be manipulated. Mm -hmm. Um, They take our deepest, darkest, biggest goal and they can use it against us because there's nothing we can do. With coaches' discretion, ultimately the coach has power. A therapist has power if they get to pick the team and that will always reign supreme and every athlete will forever be underneath and be a part of a process where coaching staff, where presidents, where CEOs have the ultimate power. And if you've got an amazing one that will never use that against you, you can be set up for success for life and you will have like the greatest success. But if you have a coach, a leader, a therapist, a CEO, high performance director that wants to take your biggest fear, which is losing at the Olympics, not going, not winning, not producing your best result at the highest event, and they want to use that against you, they can, they will. And the athlete, there's nothing they can do about it. And because of that, athletes are forever in a powerless state. And I think if the IOC were to stand up and say, look, if any athlete ever decided to stand up against a coach, if you are 
ever an abuse situation, your Olympics can't be taken away from you. It would change the situation. At the same point, I don't know if that'll ever happen, but unfortunately, the the power balance and the coach's discretion, which I do believe needs to exist, I think we just need to acknowledge the bad people and the bad coaches and have a better reporting system that doesn't punish the athletes or doesn't allow for punishment. And I know everyone says it's there, but it's not. Mm-hmm. It's not even close to there, which is why athletes are never believed. You look at USA Gymnastics and you'll get kicked off the team, you'll get punished, you get resources taken away. And the people that are meant to protect you are the ones that are going to protect themselves because they get to police mm-hmm. themselves. If I got to police myself, shoot, I'd never do anything wrong. That's why we have policemen. That's why we have laws. That's why we have rules, checks and balances in the U.S. But unfortunately, in the sports system, those checks and balances don't exist. And it's not until you get to the real world, you get to the Supreme Court that they go, hey, that's not that's not okay. That's not right. That's not allowed. But in the sports world, it it is. We haven't updated those checks and balances and those rules in the sporting community yet to match what happens, I think, outside of sport in the real world, in hospitals and at law offices and, you know, in the court system. And so people are just now starting to see and athletes are just now feeling empowered Mm -hmm. in order to speak up. And it's taking people in, in different scenarios to go, well, here's my situation. And not every situation is different. And I really do hope that more people believe more athletes because it's not easy to stand up and you do risk it all in doing so. And my thought is no one's gonna risk it all unless it's worthwhile. So if they're standing up and they're making a claim, it's not just because they're frivolously thought, oh, this will be fun (laughs) today. Let's see what Mm -hmm. happens. There's a very big reason. And realistically, there's a truth to it. And I really do hope people look into that more and that there's greater systems that are going to be or will be put in place that allows for, yeah, just better checks and balances and that more athletes are believed. Absolutely. All right, let's talk about the obstacles to competing for the U.S. in Beijing. You've already won at least 10 medals for Team USA. You are married to an American. Walk us through why you haven't been cleared to compete for the U.S. in Beijing. So the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, requires naturalization and a passport in hand in order to compete. So I've been able to compete for the U.S. up until now as a permanent resident. Our International Bobsled Federation the requirements in order to compete are just that you're a permanent resident, of which I am in the U.S. Um, So I've been able to do World Cups as well as World Championship events for the U.S. The Olympics, though, however, requires citizenship and a passport. So in order for me to compete at the Games, I need a passport and I haven't, I'm in the process of from green card until Citizen, you have to serve a naturalization period, which I'm currently serving. And we've applied for the application of citizenship, but that on average takes anywhere from nine to 12 months from when you file to be processed to when you get called in for an interview. How long ago did you apply? Eight months ago. Well, this sounds stressful. Yeah. yeah. So I couldn't apply until about eight months ago. So when I started competing for USA, it was like, well, I've got to wait out my naturalization period. Then Uh when I could apply, we applied knowing it was going to be close timing in order to get it. Okay. So Beijing starts February 4th. Yes. I think we can do this. I have to have a passport in hand by January 16th. Okay. (laughs) In order to be eligible to go. 
right. so by January 16th, you'll know. Okay, I will so know by too. January 16th, yeah. you'll know. Now, okay. until the 15th, I'm holding out to the last possible second. I still will yeah, be competing <laughs> um, this year. So I still will do every single race going into this year because if and when the passport comes January 15th, I want to be lined up and having done every single qualifier to be in the best position to to win, hopefully, Olympic gold medals for Team USA. So I will compete this entire year and give everything I have, just like I have always done to the sport and what I do until it unchooses me and it doesn't allow me to, which is that January 16th date. So we will see. Cool. We need to bottle your perspective and sell it. (laughs) We would make so much money. I think you've made your case extremely strongly here, but what would you say to someone who doesn't think you should be able to compete for the U.S.? I guess I would want to know why Mm -hmm. they don't think that. Mm -hmm. What is it that makes you feel that I don't? And I'm sure there's a lot of Canadians, unfortunately, that are probably hurt that I left. At the same point, I would want to know from their standpoint how they feel that I deserve to be in a negative environment in order to continue. What do I owe them and or... Why don't they want me to? What I would hope is peace on earth. Mm. That everybody, (laughs) everybody in general, though, wants what's better for others. Nobody should be forced to stay in an environment they don't feel safe in. Nobody. It doesn't matter if it's a school, if it's a job, if it's work. We look at football, the NFL. We look at the NHL. Athletes get traded all the time. If it helps you to look at me as an athlete that got traded to Team USA from Team Canada, go for it. At the same point, though, yeah, I I guess I would just question. There's nothing I've done. Legally, I've applied for immigration just like everybody else is able to. I followed the process and the letter of Mm -hmm. the law there. I live in this country. I will raise my family in this country. I love this country. It is who I want to represent. And I think at the Olympics... That's what we should want, the best of the best representing their country to the best of their ability. And it is what the country should be able to produce. Mm -hmm. So basically bring it. Yeah. (laughs) Understanding I'm not everybody's cup of tea, too. Yeah, just bring it. Just bring it. (laughs) Pretty much. Like, I I will argue till we're blue in the face as to why I should. And I probably won't win from the standpoint of those people. If you just don't want me to and you don't like me, that's okay too. We all can have our own opinions. I am not for everybody, and that is okay. Just at least give me the respect from the results that I have and that I've earned and deserve in order to allow me the opportunity to do my best work on the biggest field of play, which is the games, because I've I've earned that. And I think our country has also earned for the best to be representing them. I completely agree. And I am so rooting for you, well, thank you. to get that passport and to represent the U.S. in Beijing. And uh, this has been a fascinating conversation and an extremely inspiring one. And I think voices like yours are so incredibly important to transform the power dynamics and also to speak out on the sort of reality of being a human being and that even the toughest of us all are not unbreakable. And sometimes the biggest expression of courage is walking away from something. Definitely. Well, thank you. (laughs) 
And that wraps up my extended conversation with two-time Olympic champion, Kaylee Humphreys. She is a perfect example of how we should all strive to find purpose in struggle. Sometimes being yourself means going against the status quo. And although that can be a painful and lonely path, it can also lead to extraordinary things. And there's no doubt Kaylee has accomplished extraordinary things. Not to mention, with her new U.S. passport in hand, her greatest feats may still be on the horizon. Torched is a production of Film Nation Entertainment in association with Gilded Audio. It's produced by me, Molly Bloom, Alyssa Martino, Milan Papelka, Andy Chug, and Whitney Donaldson. This episode was produced by Andrew Schultz. Original music by James Lavino. Special thanks to Allison Cohen, Matt Eisenstadt, and Omar Tarbush. Next time on Torched, we're sharing another special extended interview. This one with gold medal diver, Greg Luganis. He shares his journey from the foster care system to the Olympic world stage, to the front lines of LGBTQIA activism. I realized that by sharing my perceived weaknesses, I was actually sharing my strength. That's next time on Torched. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. See you next time. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.